Yeah, there's a couple, well, let me stop the recording for a second. There's a couple things on the review. Alright guys, so we're going to talk about epilepsy today. Um, it's a little bit difficult to go through the epilepsy medications if you don't know the neurotransmitters um, responsible for causing epilepsy, and if you don't, do patho. So I'm going to do my best impersonation of Professor Deano for a few minutes, and then after that, we will go into the medications, and hopefully that was enough. And if not, we're going to have to do questions eventually, and that uh, should solidify it for you guys. Um, I know it's going to be kind of hard to get around these questions without having done medicine and patho. Um, so my exam will be reflective of that, and the amount of practice questions we do to get ready will also be uh, reflective of that. Uh, this is just a chart to kind of give you the uh, drug classes and the generations. There's not a whole lot of importance. A lot of times when things are broken up into generations, it's really important to know which ones are first and which ones are second generation. You don't have to worry about that uh, for my exam or for the pants, um, not for this drug class. For like antipsychotics and things like that, they're grouped together by side effects and side effect profiles, which is really important. Uh, but for the anticonvulsants, it's not really a big deal. So I wouldn't worry too much about them. And those adjunctive therapies, the pregabalin and levetiracetam, those are considered second generation as well. Um, and also phosphenatoin. Yeah, phosphenatoin is actually considered first gen, um, along with phenatoin. Does this have a, oh, can you use, nice, you guys can see this, all right, cool. So, uh, hopefully I can explain this to you guys in the simplest way possible, so that way you guys can understand when we're talking about the mechanisms. At the very base level, um, all I want you guys to understand is what uh, neurotransmitters are inhibitory and which ones are going to potentiate action potentials um, at the level of the neuron. Because all of these mechanisms that are in this picture, which is not that many, is where all the medications work. And some of the medications work on multiple um, multiple different channels at the same time. Um, so essentially, uh, anytime you're going to have depolar depolarization of a neuron, you get an influx of sodium um, into the neuron, okay, which begins the depolarization process and opens calcium channels and calcium inflows. Calcium binds to vesicles within the terminal end of the neuron, which contain glutamine. And once it binds to calcium, it allows it to uh, diffuse out into the synaptic cleft. We're all good so far? Yeah. All right, cool. I tried to keep this as simple as possible. And then the glutamate, okay, and glutamate is a, um, it's, a it's stimulating. It's stimulating an action potential, okay? And it's working on two different channels, okay, on the receiving neuron, um, AMPA and NMDA. And that's going to allow sodium and calcium to enter the other neuron, which is going to then also cause further depolarization. So anytime you have a patient who has uh, seizures, one of the mechanisms is excessive production and secretion of glutamine, which produces prolonged and excessive stimulation of, ner of nerve cells or in the neurons, which leads to too much activity, which leads to seizures. Um, if that happens in one small area of the brain, you have what's called a partial seizure. And if it happens globally throughout the brain, then you have um, generalized seizures. Okay? Generalized seizures always produce some kind of uh, loss of consciousness. 
Um, it can either be, sometimes you'll see like the, the rapid jerking movements or the whole body, the tonic-clonic seizures. Um, also within the generalized category of seizures or absent seizures, which is when the patients are just kind of like staring off into space and you can't really tell they have a seizure, but the patient transiently lost consciousness in that moment. So those are considered generalized seizures involving all areas of the brain. Partial seizures involve small areas of the brain, and they're further broken down into simple partial seizures and complex. And the only difference between simple and complex is um, a complex partial seizure has some kind of altered consciousness associated to it. Okay? Um, um, what, that's about, huh? what about the, like, the mild chronic jerking? What that the patients do when they're... That's a form of a, it's a partial complex seizure. Partial complex. Yeah. Can you repeat her question? Uh, she was asking about myotonic and atonic seizures. Okay. So the, the simple and the partial for my exam, I'm not going to ask you guys since we haven't done medicine or patho, I'm not going to ask you guys to identify or diagnose what type of seizure it is in a vignette and then pick the medication. You're going to be given what kind of seizure it is. Um, just explaining so that you guys know. If we done medicine, it would have been fun. I could have done that, but we didn't. So, um, so, yeah. so what we just explained with glutamate is the stimulating pathway, uh, excess stimulation of the neurons. Um, but just like you can have that, you can also have a lack of inhibitory neurons. And a lack of inhibitory neurons allows the glutamate pathway to just continue. So it's not necessarily too much glutamate. It's not enough inhibition of glutamate. Okay, and that inhibitory pathway is all based on, um, and it doesn't work directly on glutamate, but it works on um, repolarizing the, the other neuron. So when it comes to GABA, GABA is an inhibitory neuron. So if you have a problem with GABA and you don't have enough GABA, then you don't inhibit the stimulation of the neuron enough. And if you don't inhibit it, then you have, by definition, too much stimulation due to lack of inhibition. Does that make sense? So GABA goes through a GABA-A channel and uh, allows chloride to enter the membrane and to repolarize the membrane. So if you're not repolarizing the membrane, if chloride is not entering the membrane, it's going to remain um, polarized, and you're going to have continuous uh, innervation and continuous uh, propagation of synapses in the neuron. Um, so different ways that you can prevent this problem is by blocking sodium channels. If you block sodium channels, then you stop this whole process from happening uh, and, in effect, will not allow as much glutamate to be produced. Uh, you can block calcium channels, which means you still have, uh, you know, sodium coming in, but it will limit the amount of calcium entering, which will also limit the amount of um, glutamate which is secreted into the synaptic cleft. Um, you can have medications that work directly on glutamate. You can have medications that work on MDA and AMPA. And you can have medications that work on GABA. So we're going to talk about all those medications as we go through the lecture. Um, but whenever you have a question like, oh, what does this mean? What is it doing? You go back to the slide, and you can read the mechanism and kind of pinpoint exactly where in this mechanism it's working. And if you're a visual learner, then that should help you. Does anybody have any questions on that? No? Is anybody extremely confused? No? <laughs> I'm extremely confused. <laughs> so the first medication we're going to talk about is phenobarbital. Um, phenobarbital belongs to a group of medications called barbiturates. Uh, these medications have a lot of side effects. Their indications are very limited, um, and their role is very limited. 
And a lot of times this medication is used in patients who've kind of exhausted a lot of other options uh, in terms of treatment. Um, but it is used, it's one of the medications that's preferred to use in like neonatal patients and pediatric populations. So the medication works by enhancing GABA, uh, which in turn prolongs the chloride channel and it also blocks sodium. So when we come back to here, um, it works on the GABA channels and allows them to stay open longer so more chloride can enter the neurons and help it get repolarized so that there's not so much stimulation. And it also helps inhibit the calcium channels. So it kind of works on both mechanisms, on the stimulatory and inhibitory pathways. So one of the biggest drug classes that you guys are going to be tested on, um, as you can tell by the amount of sheer content on this slide, um, is going to be the hydantoins, which is phenytoin and phosphenytoin. Um, these medications are tested for many reasons. One, because they're used in status epilepticus, and not as the primary choice, but as a secondary choice, um, and also used after, um, after the initial medication is given, which we'll talk about later it's used to continue to suppress seizure activity after that medication is given. It's used to prevent seizures, it's used to treat acute seizures. Um, it has a lot of crazy weird side effects that you're gonna get tested on um, many different times. Uh, and if you're in Brain Bowl, you've already been tested on them like 100 times. One thing that's important to know, um, is they work pretty much for all types of seizures. So it's better to remember what they don't work for. Um, which is absent seizures and myoclonic seizures. And not only does that not work for them, it's going to make them worse. For patients who have generalized tonic-clonic seizures, um, depending on what resource you're using, it's considered the, the first-line treatment for them. It can be used for simple and partial complex. It's not considered first-line, however. And it's used in status epilepticus, but it's also not considered first-line for it. Bless you. So, very important things to remember. I know this is a lot of information, so I'm going to try to help you guys focus on um, what is extremely important. One, contraindicated in pregnancy. It's teratogenic. Um, what else? So, side effects that are very, very, very commonly tested is herstuism, so uh, developing male pattern hair growth, okay? Uh, and gingival hyperplasia, huge. You will be tested on gingival hyperplasia. You will be tested on hair growth. Uh, agranulocytosis and aplastic anemia, you will absolutely be tested on. Vitamin D deficiency and osteomalacia go hand in hand, um, so you can kind of put those two together. Folic acid deficiency, which is part of the big reason why it's considered teratogenic and contraindicated in pregnancy. And then um, the rashes. The rashes are very, very commonly tested. It's one of the medications that causes uh, lupus-like syndromes and Steven Johnson syndrome. So all of those things are going to be extremely important for testing. So I know it's a lot of information, uh, but if you remember that the medication is used as first line for generalized clonic tonic, uh, it's going to worsen myoclonic and absent seizures. It is going to cause herstuism, gingival hyperplasia, 
agranulocytosis, um, vitamin D deficiency, osteomalacia, folic acid deficiency, and the Steven Johnson and lupus-like syndromes, uh, you have like at least six questions that are going to probably be on your exam by knowing those things. So study them very well um, and focus on those. A lot of the other things like hypotension, tachycardia, they are extremely important, um, but they're also caused by a lot of these other medications also. One thing that's very important is that when the medication is being given, um, it should be given slowly because giving it too fast can increase the risk of developing hypotension and, um, uh, and arrhythmias. So slow infusion of the medication when being given um, in the acute setting is very important. Does anybody have any questions about this so far? No? Um, let me see if there's anything we did not talk about. So, patient education about practicing good oral hygiene is important um, because of the gingival hyperplasia. So, they have inflammation, the gingiva is a lot easier to have uh, food particles and things like that get stuck and cause secondary bacterial infections. So uh, practicing good oral hygiene, although regularly important, it should be emphasized in patients who are taking this medication. It's just another way that they can test you on gingival hyperplasia. Uh, changes in urine color. And then we already talked about the um, rapid administration by IV leading to hypotension as well as um, arrhythmias. When administering the medication, you should also be monitoring blood glucose levels um, because it can induce hyperglycemia and in patients who are diabetic, it can induce DKA. Um, so also monitoring blood glucose is extremely important. The list of medications that that it has interactions with is huge. Um, so do you need to know the medications? I mean, yeah. You can be tested on the medications. They do ask, I'm just to see if I can pick some that are more commonly tested. Um, amiodarone. Diazepam, especially because diazepam is given um, for other conditions within these same indications. So sometimes can be given together and that can cause issues. So knowing amiodarone, diazepam is important, isoniazid is important. Methylphenidate is important because it's commonly prescribed as well. Um, phenethylcyazines, no salicylates. Trazodone is important uh, because again, patients who are taking this medication may also be taking trazodone. So amiodarone, trazodone, diazepam, uh, isoniazid, and um, methylphenidate. Those five are extremely important. I should bold them for you guys, huh? I will highlight them for you. I should just do this, huh? <laughs> Everything's important. Yeah, all slides important. It kind of is. This was like 20 slides, so. <laughs> there was a lot of slides on hide and toys. 
Um, go back to this side. No question? Good. So oh, there was a cool mnemonic in, uh, in Pence Pearls that I, that I looked at um, where you can use the word phenytoin to remember a lot of important details about phenytoin. It's not all-inclusive, and some of the stuff uh, works really well, and the other stuff is kind of a reach. Um, but P450 inducer, so it induces cytochrome P450. And what that means is that other medications that work on cytochrome P450, their efficacy is going to be reduced. So any medication that you know works through cytochrome P450, the dosage is going to need to be adjusted upwards because there's going to be uh, more induction of P450, so more breakdown of those medications. So dosage typically needs to be adjusted upward. That's why, that's why it has such a wide-ranging um, uh, group of medications that it affects because literally anything that goes through P450 can have an interaction with, um, with phenytoin. So H is for hyperplasia of the gingiva and also herstuism. E is for erythema multiforme, which goes hand-in-hand hand with SJS. Um, and on the same topic of rashes, if you could just remember lupus in there, that'd be great. And for neuropathies, Y for yield, um, because you need to give the medication slowly to prevent hypotension. T for triadogenic, O for osteopenia. I for inhibits folic acid. And N for nystagmus. So does that include everything? No, but is it extremely helpful and will get you a lot of information you might need? Uh, absolutely. So the amino stobilis um, includes the drug class of carbamazepine and oxcarbamazepine. Both of these medications um, have various different indications for different conditions. They're used for bipolar, trigeminal neuralgia, they're used for seizures. Um, so the things that I would want you guys to focus on um, is that they're uh, used in partial complex seizures uh, and trigeminal neuralgia. Bipolar we're going to talk about in a separate lecture, so I don't need you guys to, we're not going to go over it too much right now, but you will be tested on this for tri trigeminal neuralgia on the pants. Um, Trigeminoralgia is a form of headache, which you guys are going to learn about. So carbamazepine, trigeminoralgia, make the connection. Exactly. This. Carbamazepine can be used for most seizures, although it's not considered uh, first line. But um, you should not use it in the treatment of absence seizures. Uh, as far as interactions go, you guys need to know that grapefruit juice increases the levels of the medication. I don't know why, but anytime grapefruit juice is mentioned as an interaction, they like to test on it. I don't know that many people that love to drink grapefruit juice, but... All of you guys are done. Yeah, okay. I guess that's why it's important. With tequila? Okay, got it. In our recording, fantastic. So this medication is contraindicated with alcohol as well as grapefruit juice. And if you do both together, that's a big problem. <laughs> as far as side effects go, guys, um, vision changes, blurry vision um, is important. All right, so vision changes. 
agranulocytosis, so obviously you're monitoring CBC, um, and anything with a black box warning, you need to know it. Another thing that they always test on with carbamazepine is that it has a tendency to um, cause an overproduction of ADH. So it's associated with signs and symptoms of syndrome of inappropriate anti-diuretic hormone secretion. What are those signs and symptoms? SIADH. How do they present? Polydipsia, polyuria, so if you don't have ADH, then you don't retain fluids and you'll have all the symptoms, which is diabetes and syphilis. If you have too much ADH, you're retaining too much fluid, edema, right? So you're going to have urinary retention, you're not going to be urinating, you're going to be retaining fluids, so the opposite of diabetes and syphilis, right? Huh? So your di your, if you have a bunch of fluid in the circulation, your sodium levels by concentration are going to be low. Yeah. So hypo and a treatment. Yeah. Hypo and a treatment. Um, so yes, no SIDH, no agranulocytosis, um, and fatal blood dyscrasias, which is the same, same difference. Um, grapefruit juice interaction, absolutely. Is it carbamazepine that just increases ADH or are the others? Both. All right, so the succinamides, uh, there's one medication in this class that you guys need to know, and it's ethosuximide. Uh, ethosuximide, you will be tested on all the time because it's the first-line treatment for Absence seizures. All right, guys. First line treatment for absence seizures. There's a lot of other medications you can use for absence seizures. But there's only one that's first line. And whenever they test you on absence seizures, the answer is going to be ethosuximab. It's not the only one that does that, but it's the only one they're going to test you on, and it's the first line. It has the best side effect profile of any other medication you can use to treat um, absence seizures. So, it's not usually tested, but you need to know about blood dyscrasias associated with the medication. You need to know that it's teratogenic. You need to know that it transmits into breast milk. And that you need to monitor hepatic and renal functions. treatment for absence seizures, blood dyscrasias is an adverse reaction, monitoring of liver and renal function, um, and teratogenic and also crosses into breast milk. 
So when it comes to mechanism of action, this is functioning on the calcium channels, but specifically these calcium channels. Yep. Yeah, take it, it doesn't have to be taking hormones, but taking it on an empty stomach can produce some GI uh, discomfort. I'm not going to test you on that, but... We don't have to know about the SRE quality. Which one? Yeah. I'm not 100% sure why specifically, and, and I don't think it's that I don't know. I don't think, I think it's that the direct mechanism of action is not, why it works is not well established. And that's the case for a lot of the medications that are in here. Because effectively, like if you are, if you are blocking this sodium channel, and if you're, if you're blocking the sodium channel, if you're blocking this calcium channel, um, if you're blocking the proteins that allow this to fuse here and diffuse out, yeah. you're effectively reducing the amount of calcium coming into this channel too. So they should all work for right. absence seizures, but they don't. So the mechanism behind why that is is not really well understood. Yes. And again, some of those medications that do that do work, um, but they have more adverse side effects associated to them. But not all of them do. There's some medications that inhibit processes prior to that calcium channel that also inhibit that calcium channel that don't work for absence seizures and can actually worsen them. Um, for instance, phenobarbital um, blocks sodium channels, and it worsens absence seizures. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So those mechanisms and why they work is not super well understood. All right, so the book like to bundle up the rest of the medications into um, other anticonvulsants. Um, I tried to reorganize it because the way it was organized before was kind of crazy. Um, so I tried to reorganize it by generation um, and really narrow down what is important about each of these medications. Um, so when it comes to Valproid, Valproid is a medication um, that's commonly tested because of its adverse reactions. Okay, So the medication works in the GABA channels and it works on sodium and it works on potassium channels. So when we come over here, it's functioning on GABA, so it's allowing chloride to maintain within the neuron, um, and it's functioning on calcium and it's functioning on sodium channels. Okay. Uh, mechanism of action of the medications, you need to know them? Yes. For which ones? All of them. Yeah. So mechanism of actions for everything is important. Um, so that's not adverse drug reaction there next to, next to it. That's, that's the mechanism of action. This, this is... Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, that's not... Might be. All right, there we go. So the adverse drug reactions are further down. So weight gain, vision loss, pancreatitis, and hepatotoxicity. Um, will you be tested on that? Absolutely. What else will you be tested on? Valproid specifically is preferred for um, myoclonic seizures. DOCs, drug of choice if you didn't um, already know that abbreviation. Is anybody confused by any of my abbreviations? Yeah, really? 
Sorry. I like abbreviations because it lets me fit everything into 10 slides. <laughs> so Valproate also, uh, it's not the primary medication for bipolar disorder, but it's, it's used a lot in um, the management of bipolar disorder. Yeah, it's used a lot. I've seen more patients on this than I have for a lot of other bipolar medications. Um, yeah, so for Valproate, you need to know the mechanism of action, drug of choice for myoclonic seizures, the bolded um, adverse drug reactions, weight gain, vision loss, pancreatitis, and hepatotoxicity. Uh, these two medications that are in green uh, are not extremely commonly used and are not extremely commonly tested. I am not going to ask you questions about these medications on my exam. Um, and I don't think you're going to be ever tested on them in the pants either. So Felbamate works mainly on the, uh, on the postsynaptic receptor, which is right here, which allows calcium to inflow into the cell. Um, so it essentially um, doesn't allow as much depolarization at the end of the day. That's, that's what it ends up doing by not allowing um, positive ions to flow into the cell and stimulate depolarization. So the main indication, and if you ever did get a question on this medication, it would be that it's the preferred medication to be used in Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which is a really debilitating um, uh, seizure syndrome that affects pediatric populations, but it's not part of your pants blueprint, uh, so you shouldn't really be tested on it, and that's probably why the medication is not part of your blueprint. You probably won't see it in your pants books and your review guides. You may see it on like USMLE books but you shouldn't see it. It was in the textbook, um, but because it's not really relevant to the pants, I'm not gonna test you on it myself. So lamotrigine. Um, lamotrigine is gonna block sodium channels, which is gonna inhibit uh, the release of glutamine. So if we go back, blocking the sodium channel is gonna ultimately limit depolarization at this level, which is gonna limit calcium influx, which will limit glutamate being secreted into the cleft. So that's essentially the, the mechanism. Uh, what's important about lamotrigine um, is mainly the side effects of Steven Johnson syndrome. It's not considered first line for treatment of any seizure disorders. But it can be used to treat various seizure disorders. Have I ever personally seen somebody with Stephen Dunn's yeah. syndrome? No. 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 Why? Well, no. <coughs> I um, actually did in a hospital in Miami, and I was just wondering how common that is. It's not extremely common, um, but it's something that anytime somebody has a, like I have a, when, when I'm evaluating a patient with rash, yeah. it's because rashes are annoying. Um, when you guys start seeing patients in the clinical setting, you realize how annoying rashes are. Um, but essentially, when I see a rash like in the urgent care, uh, I view my job as make sure this person is not dying from this rash. Um, and that process is actually pretty easy. Um, so things that can kill people with rash, Steven Johnson syndrome, right. 10. So anytime somebody has a rash, you look in their mouth, make sure they don't have lesions in the mouth. 
So Steven Johnson syndrome is 10, erythema multiforme. Um, what else with rashes is dangerous? 10. 10, Steven Johnson, EM. What else? Huh? Scaldus. Oh, staphylococcus, scaldus skin syndrome, yes. Anytime people's skin is sloughing off, it's a problem. Right? Yeah, bad sign, right? So, yes. What else? Meningococcemia, huge. So, rash and headache is immediately concerning to me. Um, right? But rash with no headache is a little bit less concerning. What else? Kawasaki disease. Rash in kids yeah. with fever. Scarlet fever. Usually concerning. Scarlet fever, yes. So rash and fever, red flag. What else? Rash fever, rash and headache, red flag. Any rash affecting the hands and feet. Huge red flag. Syphilis. Kawasaki. Not good. You see a rash on the hands and feet, chill. Do a good exam. You gotta go in on that. Right? And wear your gloves. And wear your gloves. What else? What other rashes? You're missing some big ones. Lyme disease. Does it look like a target? Was the person hiking? Did they just travel somewhere? Immediate cause for concern. What else? Rocky Mountain. Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Did it start on the hands and wrists and go to the trunk of the body? Again, were they camping somewhere? What were they doing? Yes, reporting. So all the viral exanthems I'm not super concerned about because usually self-limiting, they'll go away. But if it's a kid, I, it's part of my differential for sure. Um, what, other, what else? Rashes. Allergic reactions. So hives, not super concerned about. But if you got swelling in your lips, your tongue, your throat, or if it just started right before you got to me, I'm extremely concerned. Right? So anaphylactic reactions, severe allergic reactions, uh, shingles. Yeah. That's what you said? That's what she said. So shingles. What else? So we said syphilis. Why is erythema multiform of major concern? Because you have to be concerned about if they're having a drug that's causing it or a drug that they're taking. Oh, see, so we're talking about the older the HSV can also cause it. Right. Right. Or but Ultimately, if it's related to a drug, it can progress, it can worsen, they can develop SJS, they can develop other... Yeah. So you have to identify underlying causes, discontinue medications. Wait, if it's not Steven Johnson syndrome, but it's still, it's still a hypersensitivity. But sometimes you keep giving it to them and it gets worse. <laughs> if they develop, but usually if they develop a rash and you increase the dose, it's getting worse. Which can become. Yes, and they will test you on that. Um, so we kind of went off the rails a little bit. But uh, yes, rashes. Guys, settle down. 
So rashes are annoying, um, but usually if the rash is not any of those things we just talked about, it's usually not a cause for concern. So you have to have a list of rashes in your head that are concerning. Um, and then after that, after you're done with that, um, if it's dry, keep it wet, and if it's wet, keep it dry. And then you're done. So, I mean, not necessarily, but for the most part. That was my um, my TED talk on rashes. <laughs> Here for it. All right, guys, settle down. So, zonosamide again. It's not a medication. You're going to be um, you're going to be tested on. So I wouldn't worry about it. I'm not going to test you on it. Um, it was in the book, which is why I, I left it on here. Um, but I'm not going to test you on it because it's not it's not going to be part of your blueprint. I've never seen the medication in any test question. Um, it's also probably not in your review books. Gabapentin is extremely important. You guys have heard about gabapentin many times already for uh, various different indications. Uh, gabapentin can be used to treat neuropathic pain, um, post-herpetic neuralgia. So I don't know if you guys, have you guys studied shingles yet? Cool, so a lot of patients who have shingles, you guys settle down. A lot of patients who have shingles after the development of the rash, even after the rash clears, they can have pain in that same distribution for a very long time. Um, so one of the indications for gabapentin is for neuropathic pain caused from uh, diabetic neuropathies, from post-herpetic neuralgia after, uh, after zoster. Um, so there's various, various, various indications. The two medications in the class are gabapentin um, and tigabine. The medications have different mechanism of actions, even though they're kind of considered to be in the same class. Gabapentin works on sodium channels, and um, tigabine works on the um, GABA reuptake uh, receptors. So, so tigabine is going to work here in the receptor that takes this GABA and brings it back into the neuron. So when you uh, block that, you're keeping GABA in the cleft longer, which is stimulating the GABA receptor longer, which is letting more chloride into the cell, which is preventing hyperpolarization. Does that make sense? So you're allowing GABA, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, to continue to repolarize the cell so that it doesn't um, continue producing synapses. Does that make sense? Yeah? Yes? Yes? They have two different mechanisms of actions, but they're kind of considered to be in the same, yeah, in this, they're considered to be in the same class. So for seizures, uh, really they're not used too often, um, but when they are, it's, it's kind of like as a, a later line after you've exhausted many different options for complex partial seizures. Uh, but it's not typically used, you'll see it used more often for neuropathic pain, post-herpetic neuralgia. Um, it has a very, it's very limited in its use in elderly populations because it can cause a lot of dizziness. Uh, it's one of the biggest side effects that you'll be tested on. Um, it can lead to falls. So in elderly populations, you have to be very careful when you're prescribing the medication. So 
So topiramate is very important. Um, we talked about topiramate already once when we talked about what? Weight loss. We talked about weight loss. Um, we talked about tapering off the medication to prevent seizures. Uh, the medication works by blocking sodium channels and also works on the NMDA uh, receptors, as well as enhancing GABA activity. So if we go back, it's going to work at the level of the sodium channels to prevent the initial depolarization. It's going to work at the level of the NMDA receptors to uh, uh, on the receiving neuron to prevent influx and depolarization. Uh, and also going to work on the GABA to, to allow um, prolonged repolarization through the GABA channel by allowing more chloride into the neuron. Some important things to know about topiramate, it's considered first line for partial seizures um, and can be used as an adjunct or it can be used as monotherapy. It can also be used for generalized um, tonic-clonic seizures, but it's not considered first line. I'm trying to see if there's any... I'm not going to test you guys too much on um, adverse drug reactions of topiramate uh, because they're not commonly, they're not commonly tested. It has mild anticholinergic effects, which is why it's, con uh, it, it's considered um, to be able to induce uh, narrow-angle glaucoma, but it's not, it doesn't have a heavy emphasis. It's not tested. There's medications that are much more commonly tested on this than topiramate, um, so I wouldn't be concerned about it. I'm not going to test you guys on adverse drug reactions. But mechanism of action for all medications, absolutely, um, and first line for partial seizures. A drug class that you can definitely expect to be tested on um, multiple times on the exam is going to be benzodiazepines. Uh, benzodiazepines are used for several different indications. Here's what I found. What'd you find? <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's been listening to me for a while. Um, so the big thing about benzodiazepines that you're going to be tested on when it comes to seizures is going to be for patients who have status epilepticus, which is... Uh, any seizure defined by, I think, more than 30 minutes of prolonged seizure. So somebody who's been seizing actively for a very long time or doesn't or has multiple seizures with minimal to no um, period of refractory period in between seizures uh, is considered to be in status epilepticus, and benzodiazepines are the first-line treatment for this condition. The main mechanism of action for benzodiazepines is working on the GABA channels right here, which is going to allow for repolarization of the neuron, which will prevent um, continuous stimulation of the neuron. So it works on the GABA channels. What makes them addictive? Huh? What makes them addictive? I don't know. Diazepam and lorazepam um, can both be given. Uh, they don't usually test you on diazepam being available as a, as a rectal gel. Um, it was in the text, so I included it. But the rectal gel is not, not commonly prescribed, so I would not worry too much about that, um, that factoid. Uh, 
Levetiracetam, so it's not in the chart, the SV2A channels, but on this vesicle where the glutamate is, um, there's an SVA2 receptor, and that that is what the calcium binds to, which allows it to permeate through the membrane. So it's on the actual vesicle here. So this medication works by binding to it and not allowing calcium to bind to it so that it doesn't uh, permeate through the membrane and release the glutamine. Um, it's one of the things on this image that's not really depicted, so take a note of that to help you remember. But it's affecting channels that are on the vesicle that help it fuse once bound to calcium and permeate through the membrane. Levotiracetam is not used first line for partial seizures, but it can be used uh, in conjunction. And it can also be used in conjunction for generalized seizures, but um, it's not considered first line for either of them. So there's uh, some patients need to be on uh, anti-seizure medication or anti-epileptic drugs for very long periods of time. Some of them are on them for a lifetime. Um, but there are certain patients in which you may uh, be able to successfully withdraw the medications. Um, and there are certain factors that affect your decision to do that and the likelihood of them um, continuing to have seizure-like syndromes after you withdraw the medications. So patients who have not had a seizure for multiple years, uh, particularly two to four years, Typically, uh, that's a favorable factor that tells you that if you withdraw the medication, there's a chance that they may not continue to have seizure-like um, symptoms. If you start them on treatment, and within the first year of being on treatment, there's their um, seizures completely resolve, that's also a really good prognostic factor that you can withdraw the medications. Um, and also patients who have normal EEGs and neurologic evaluations. So patients whose seizures start really early, like less than two years old, um, that's a poor prognostic factor, but if it starts after two, it's considered a positive. Um, and patients who start late in age, like after age 35, it's considered a poor prognostic factor, but earlier than that. So essentially, young people who develop uh, epileptic syndromes at a young age are more favorable, but anything under two is considered poor prognostic. So patients who have really bad seizures or really big frequency of seizures, it's considered poor prognostic factors. Patients who have um, very bad episodes of status epilepticus are considered poor prognostic factors. Uh, patients who have more than one seizure type, so if they suffer from multiple different categories of seizures, uh, the likelihood of them being able to be withdrawn from medications is very low. Um, and if they have any cognitive impairment or um, baseline motor deficits, those patients are also considered at poor prognostic factors. Um, and you do need to know this because there will be questions asking you whether or not the patient is a good candidate for um, withdrawal of medications or if they should be considered for uh, long-term treatment with anti-epileptic drugs. We talked a lot about status epilepticus. Um, 
seizures that are very persistent uh, or present with continuous episodes that last more than 30 minutes, or recurrent seizures that don't have any significant periods of consciousness between episodes. If you ever have a patient with this, it's considered an emergency. Um, there's a very high risk of morbidity and mortality associated with status epilepticus. So um, controlling the seizure episode immediately is important. Um, the patients a lot of times can choke on their tongue. They can bite their tongue, get lacerations, bleed, uh, have head trauma. Uh, so these are all things that you need to try to prevent in the acute setting. So these patients are treated with benzodiazepines. Um, specifically, lorazepam is the drug of choice. One thing you may be tested on at some point, um, I don't think I'm going to test you on my exam, and I, I don't think it's going to be on the pants either, but it's something important to know, is that midazolam comes in an intramuscular formulation. Um, so if you're ever having a patient that's having a seizure, you can imagine it's kind of hard to get a line on a patient who's having a seizure to give them IV lorazepam. So in those patients, uh, an intramuscular formulation um, like midazolam can be useful to control them initially um, to establish a line and tr begin treatment with lorazepam. Um, so it's a good thing to know, uh, but it's not something that I've seen tested with any kind of relative frequency on board questions or anything like that. So patients who are refractory to benzodiazepines or can't take them um, can benefit from phenytoin as a second line. Uh, and phenobarbital is the third-line agent for uh, status epilepticus. Usually, uh, that's not, that concept's not tested either. Usually, they're testing you on the initial management, which is IV lorazepam. And that's it. <laughs>